Tonight, on the Midnight Train podcast, we take the train to the Dyatlov Pass. What happened to a group of well-trained hikers? How did they die? Was it the fucking Yeti? Probably. Oh yeah, we say things like fucking Yeti and COVID-19 can suck a bag of dicks, all aboard. And welcome to the Midnight Train Podcast, where we bring the dark to light. You guys know what that means. We make fun of and joke about creepy shit while bringing you as much information on each topic as possible. I am your host, the conductor of the cryptic, Jonathan Sayer, and I'm by myself today. And you know why? That's because, as Evan said in the beginning, COVID-19 can suck a big bag of dicks. Yeah, Mr. Moody has the COVID and it's hitting him pretty hard. So you guys uh, do me a favor and uh, give him a uh, some love out there. You know, find him wherever he is out there in social media land and, and tell him that you, you know, you hope for a good recovery. I guess he's not doing too well. I mean, he'll make it through, but uh, it's it's fucking him up pretty bad. So, yeah, make sure you guys are, uh, you know, just letting him know that uh, he'll be all right. You know what I mean? He'll be all right. At least I hope so. Well, we'll see. Anyway, I'm flying solo today, and uh, we're going to be talking about something pretty fucking awesome. I'm actually excited about it. I've been wanting to do this um, topic for forever, basically, ever since we started this damn thing. And uh, we're going to be talking about the Dyatlov Pass, um, the event at the Dyatlov Pass, I guess you would say. Yeah. So uh, you beautiful bunch of dark passengers know that we are just a couple of musicians and assholes or just one today. <laughs> they love history and cannot get enough for the mysterious. And we want you all to know how much it means that you're listening to us at this very moment. Uh, your reviews and support really do make all the hard work worthwhile in saying that. Please stop over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now and give us a five-star review. Got a recent review where somebody basically told Moody to go fuck himself. No, nah, I'm just kidding. He did not say that. Uh, he basically said to not worry about all of the uh, the fuck-ups that I do when I'm speaking and whatnot. And don't focus too much on it. So I'm going to attempt to, to do that. I'm, I'm going to glance right past it because today is going to be a shitload of fuck-ups. Because most of the names are Russian, and uh, we all know how I am with the Russian. You know, I'm very good with it. Uh, no, I'm not at all, actually. It's it's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you for that review out there, man. We greatly appreciate it, and I will definitely do whatever I can to uh, not focus so much on my stupid mouth. Yeah. So anyway, get over there and uh, give us a review. Uh, five stars. would be awesome. Uh, you can leave any review you'd like. You can say, Moody, get better. There you go. That's a good one. You can also find us on Spotify and iHeartRadio by typing the Midnight Train Podcast in their search bar and clicking the follow button. You'll then get each episode as they are released. And uh, Patreon subscribers, we've got all kinds of cool shit coming for you guys. Uh, the Day the Music Died series, I got a couple other things I'm tinkering on, as well as uh, Moody. Once he gets better, he's going to be throwing some stuff up there uh, for us to do for the bonus episodes as well. So um, if you guys want to get in on that, go to patreon.com forward slash the Midnight Train Podcast. Or head over to the midnighttrainpodcast.com. Over there, you can also pick up some uh, really cool merchandise. And, uh, you know, you can sign up on our website and it's complete, uh, completely free. Plus, as a lot of you know, we do have a lot of fun on our official Facebook group page. So find that over there too. And, uh, you know, the links will be in the, uh, the show notes for this. So, yeah. So let's turn down the lights, adjust our seats, grab a drink, 
And I'm going to get spooky by myself today. I'm going to dim the lights in here and it's going to, I'm going to see if I can freak myself out. That'll be fun. <laughs> but first, here's a toast to all you beautiful motherfuckers. Too bad. That's actually a submission from an Irish songwriter. Yeah. Ireland out there. Hey, the Irish. Hey. Love the Irish out there. But anyway, his name is uh, Blocka or De Blocka. I'm sorry. I'm actually going to give him a little shout out here. He's, uh, like I said, he's Irish. He's an Irish uh, songwriter. And you can find him over at uh, Instagram on The Secret Rock Star or Twitter at The Secret Rock N1. That's the letter N and the number one. And Facebook, De Blocka, D E B L O C K A. And that is his song, uh, Forever. Yeah, it's actually pretty cool. It's got a very, uh, very, um, Beatles Oasis vibe to it, and I dig that because I, I I like the Beatles, and I used to love Oasis. Like I was completely obsessed with Oasis when I was younger. Not even joking. Like I had stickers and everything else, and, and then I found out that they were dicks. Anyway, so what is the Dyatlov Pass incident? Well, as we'll find out, it was when nine Russian hikers died in the northern Ural Mountains between February 1st and 2nd in 1959 under supposed uncertain circumstances. Hmm. The experienced trekking group, who were all from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, uh, had established a camp on the slopes of Kolot Sayakal, Sayakal, whatever, yeah, Sayakal, we have an S-Y-A-K-H-L, you guys pronounce it, fuck, in an area now named in honor of the group's leader, Igor Dyatlov. During the night, something caused them to cut their way out of their tent and attempt to flee the campsite while not being dressed because it was fucking cold and heavy-ass snowfall and um, sub-zero temperatures. And, oh, man, I love Sub-Zero from Mortal Kombat. He was, like, one of my favorite characters. I liked him. He was, I don't know. Anyway, I'm a nerd. Anyway, so after the group's bodies were gruesomely discovered, an investigation by Soviet authorities determined that six of them had died from hypothermia, while the other three had been killed by physical trauma. One victim actually had major skull damage, two had severe chest trauma, and another had a small crack in the skull. Was all this caused by an avalanche or some, you know, something far nefarious or far more nefarious, far further nefarious? I like the word nefarious. I don't know. It's nefarious. Anyway, four of the bodies were found lying in running water in a creek, and three of these had soft tissue damage of the head and face. Two of the bodies were missing their eyes. One was missing its tongue, and one was missing its fucking eyebrows. Yes, it's eyebrows. It would probably, I don't know, maybe it was a future thing because he knew that some of you ladies out there would be shaving your fucking eyebrows off now. By the way, not a good look. If you're shaving your eyebrows off, uh, I don't know. It's just not a good look. And then you pencil them in and stuff. Like, I mean, some of them can look all right, but some of them, oh boy, you're not fooling anybody. I'm just saying that right now. And then maybe you got a medical issue. I don't know. Maybe maybe you do. But if you don't, don't do that. 
right? Right, okay. The Soviet investigation concluded that a compelling natural force had caused the untimely deaths. Numerous theories have been brought forward to account for the unexplained deaths, including animal attacks, hypothermia, avalanche, uh, catabatic winds, infrasound-induced uh, <laughs> infra panic, military involvement, and some other combination of all these fucking things. And we'll discuss all those in further detail as we keep going on here. So recently, Russia has actually opened a new investigation into the Dyatlov incident in 2019, and its conclusions were uh, presented in uh, July of 2020, so not too long ago. Simply put, they believe that an avalanche had led to the death of the hikers. Okay, no matter what everyone else's theories are, they're like, listen, this is this is what happened. Survivors of the avalanche had been uh, forced to suddenly leave their camp in low visibility conditions with inadequate clothing, like I said, and had died of hypothermia. And uh, Andrei Kirikov, deputy head of the regional uh, prosecutor's office, said, quote, it was a heroic struggle. There was no panic, but they had no chance to save themselves under the circumstances. A study published in 2021, mm -hmm, just recently, suggested that a type of avalanche known as a slab avalanche could explain some of the injuries. However, uh, we'll run through everything and you guys can come to your own conclusion and what you guys think is true and what's not. What are they hiding? What are these fucking guys hiding? Yeah, the Soviets, the Soviets, they hide, they have secrets. We have plenty secrets, you know, like, you know, we, we, we have more secrets than we have snow and we have lots of snow, lots and lots. Anyway, so uh, let's dive into the details of the event here. In 1959, the group was formed um, uh, for a skiing expedition across the northern Urals in Sverdolfsk. <laughs> oh, man. Sverdolfsk. Yeah, Sverdolfsk. There it is. Oblast in the Soviet Union. According to Prosecutor Tempelov, documents that were found in the tent of the expedition suggest that the expedition was named for the 21st Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and was possibly dispatched by the local, oh, man, Komsomol organization, which was a political youth organization in the Soviet Union, which was sometimes described as the youth division of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Okay, they put that shit together. Igor Dyatlov, a 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, now uh, the Ural Federal University, was the leader who assembled a group of nine others for the trip, most of whom were fellow students and peers at the university. Okay, so mostly students, peers, there you go. Each member of the group, which consisted of eight women and two, excuse me, eight men and two women, well, that would have been a totally different story, um, was an, un, um, they, they, uh, they, eight men, sorry, yeah, uh, was an experienced grade two hiker, okay, with uh, ski tour experience. So there's like different levels and different grades, and they were actually trying to get to grade three and get their grade three certification upon their return. So this was kind of like, it was a test, you know what I mean? It's a fucking test. Get out there. You guys do it. Come back. I give you a pin. You know, I don't know. Especially, you know, I, I fucking hated tests, though. Like, ugh. Ones that could kill you would just be worse. At the time, this was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union and required candidates to uh, actually go 190 miles hiking. That's a fucking what? No. Mm -mm. No, no, that sounds horrible to me. The route was designed by uh, Igor Dyatlov's group in order to reach the far northern regions of Sverdolsk Oblast and the upper streams of the Lozva River. The route was approved by the uh, Sverdolsk. Fuck, I'm going to fuck that word up the entire time. Um, the City route, uh, route Commission, which was a division of the Sverdolsk. Sverdolsk. Ah, Man, I should have put pronunciation things in here, but it's probably better for you guys that I don't because you can be like, this guy's fucking stupid. 
anyway, uh, this committee of physical culture and sport are the ones who said, okay, you know, we're going to go ahead and do this. That's the division of it. They approved of and confirmed the group of 10 people on January 8th, 1959. And the goal of the expedition was to reach a Torton, uh, which is a mountain that was about 6.2 miles north of the site where this, uh, the, the, the incident took place, where the Diot Law of Incident took place. And this path, especially taken in February, was estimated as a Category 3 and the most difficult time to traverse. So they're going hiking in February in Russia. Mm-hmm, doesn't sound fun to me at all. None of that sounds fun. Uh, yeah, not, I'm, I'm not a big... Yeah, whatever. On January 23rd, 1959, the Dyatlov group was issued their route book, which listed their course as following the number five trail. At that time, the Sverdolsk... <laughs> I fucking hate that fucking word. Yep, I gave it to myself. I can do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the Committee of Physical Culture and Sport listed approval for 11 people. So they're saying, okay, 11 people. So the 11th person was listed as Simeon Zolotarov, who was previously certified to go with another expedition of similar difficulty, um, and that was called the Sagarin Expedition Group. I don't know why you guys didn't know that. And uh, the Dyatlov Group left the Sverdalsk city, today called Yekaterinburg. Uh, hey, I got that one. Woo, thank you. Thank you. Some of these fucking words in this. Please bear with me. Hopefully you guys are drinking along with me. And if you're not drinking, hopefully you're going to get a drink. Or if you don't drink, and if you smoke, hopefully you got some of that. And if you don't do anything, well, you're just fucking boring. Anyway, I am uh, drinking Yuzu Raspberry Sherbet from Untitled Art. This one goes out to Riley and Logan because nom, nom, nom. Anyway, hold on. Take a sip. Oh, it's fucking delicious. So anyway, they left the city on the same day they received the route book. So they get their book. They say, this is where you're going. And they're like, do-do-do, we're going to head out. So the members of the group were, and man, do I feel bad because I'm going to fuck up these names super bad. Igor Ayalekshevich Dyatlov, Yuri Nikolaevich Doroshenko, Lyudmia Alexandrovna Alexandrovna Dubinina, that's her last name. We're not even going to do middle names. It's just fucking ridiculous. Georgi, aka Yuri Kravanashenko, Alexander Kolovakov, Kolovatov, Zenaida Kolmogorov, 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 there you go, Rustam Slobodin, that one was easy, that was good, his name's Rustam though, that's pretty, I don't know, that's kind of a cool name, Rustam, hmm. except he's Russian, anyway, Nikolai uh, Thubo Brignoles, Simeon uh, Zolotarov, as you mentioned earlier, and Yuri Yudin, and Yuri Yudin, you're gonna hear some, uh, this fucking guy, so, the group arrived by train at Ivdel, a town at the center of the northern province of Sverdalsk Oblast, in the early morning hours of January 25th, 1959. They took a truck to Vishai, which is just it's a little itty-bitty village that uh, is the last inhabited settlement to the north. Okay, so it's just a fucking tiny little place. As of 2010, only 270 or 207 really, really fucking cold people live there. I mean, because fuck. Well, spending the night in Vizai uh, and probably freezing their fucking asses off, the skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy level levels up for the following day's hike. Okay? They're sitting around. They're eating. Probably taking a little bit of the uh, the gropa. No, no, what do they drink over there? It's probably vodka, right? Vodka and bread. That sounds breakfast of champions. On January 27th, they began their trek toward Gora Otorton. 
on January 28th, one member, Yuri Yudin, mm -hmm, I told you about this guy, who suffered from uh, several health ailments, including rheumatism and con uh, congenital heart defect, turned back due to knee and joint pain that made, an un made him unable to continue the hike. The remaining nine hikers continued the trek. Okay, first question about this guy is why in the fuck is he there to begin with? Okay, and... I don't know. I just think it's fucking weird. This guy's like, yes, I'm going to go with you guys. And um, it's going to be awesome. And he gets there and he's like, oh, man, my knee hurts. Oh, guys, I don't think I can go. A uh. little bitch. So diaries and cameras found around their campsite made it possible to track the group's route up to the day before the incident. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they rounded up surplus food and equipment that they would use for the trip back. So they're going to go up and they're going to come down. You know what I mean? The next day, the hikers started to move through the pass. It seems they, they actually planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. But because of the worsening weather conditions, like snowstorms, decreasing visibility, large piles of Yeti shit, um, they lost their direction and headed west toward the top of Kolat Sayakal. Sayakal. Sure. When they realized their mistake, the group decided to set up camp there on the slope of the mountain rather than move almost a mile downhill to a forested area that would have offered some more shelter from the weather. Yudin, the debilitated fucker that uh, shouldn't have been there to begin with, uh, he speculated, quote, Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. I don't know why you would practice camping and it's getting fucking well, Whatever. Shut up, Yudin. Yeah. Whatever. So before leaving, uh, Captain Datlov had agreed he would send a telegram to the sports club as soon as they uh, they returned, you know, to the teeny little tiny village of Vizai. Vizai. I think it's Vizai. It's Vizai. Vizai. Eh, that sounds better. It was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th, but Datlov had told Yudin before he departed from the group that he expected it to actually take longer. So when the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction because, you know, I mean, fuck it. Yeah, they're like, oh, they're out there. I'm just kidding. Uh, these types actually of delays, actually, um, they were common with these kinds of expeditions. You know, they gave a window. It was like, maybe 12th, maybe 25th, maybe not come back at all. Uh, I don't know, maybe. I'm speculating. On February 20th, the travelers worried what uh, their relatives demanded a rescue operation, and the head of the Institute sent the first rescue group, uh, consisting of volunteers, students, and teachers. And uh, later, the Army and uh, mil mil uh, Militia Forces, which is the Soviet police, became involved with uh, planes and helicopters ordered to join in on the search party, all right? So everyone's getting worried. The relatives are all up in a fucking tizzy because, you know, people are fucking, you nope, you're not hearing anything from anybody. On February 26th, the searchers um, found the group's abandoned and super fucked up tent on Kolat Sayakal, the campsite undoubtedly baffled the search party. Mikhail Sherevin, the student who found the tent, said basically, holy shit, this place is fucked up. I'm again speculating. No, he didn't say that. He actually said, quote, the tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty and all the group's belongings and shoes had been left behind. So that he's telling you what's happening. Investigators said that the uh, the tent had been cut open from the inside, which seems like a serious and quick escape route, and, you know, to fucking get out of there. Nine sets of footprints left by people wearing only socks or a single shoe or even barefoot could actually be followed leading down to the edge of a nearby wood. Um, on the opposite side of the pass, about a mile to the northeast. After uh, approximately 1,600 feet, these tracks were covered with snow. At the forest edge, under a large Siberian pine, the searchers found the visible remains of a small fire. 
there were there were the actual first two bodies they found of uh, Kravonashenko and Doroshenko. Uh, they were shoeless and dressed only in their tidy whities Kind of fucked up. The branches on the tree were broken up to five meters high, suggesting that one of the skiers had climbed up to look for something like maybe, you know, the camp or, you know, to see something. Between the pine and the camp, the searchers found three more corpses. Dyatlov, um, Kolmogorova, and Slobodin, who died in poses suggesting that they were attempting to return to the tent. They were found at distances, distances of 980, uh, 1570, and 2070 feet from the tree. All right, so they were all like by this tree. Hey, you get up there and check it out. And then they were like, fuck this. We got to go back. And yeah, it didn't work out. So finding the remaining four travelers took more than two friggin' months. They were finally found on May 4th under 13 feet of snow in a ravine 256, uh, 246 feet further into the woods from the pine tree. Three of the four were better dressed than the others, and there were signs that some clothing of those who had died first had been taken off of the corpses for use by the others. Okay, so if someone's got a jacket, then they're dead, and you don't want to die. Yeah, take the jacket. Makes sense to me, right? Uh, Dubonino was wearing uh, uh, Kravonashenko's burned, torn trousers, and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. So they're trying to do everything they can to cover themselves up because they're in this fucking horrible, horrible, horrible weather, and it's it's really bad. It's like negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit or something along those lines. So let's get into the investigation here, okay? Now that we know a little bit of the whole consensus of what happened. So a legal inquest started immediately after the first five bodies were found. A medical examination found no injuries that might have led to their deaths, and it was concluded that they had all died of hypothermia, which would make sense because it was colder than a polar bear's butthole out there. Slobodin had a small crack in his skull, but it was not thought to be a fatal wound. An exa uh, examination of the four bodies found in May shifted the overall narrative of what they initially believed transpired. Three of the hikers had fatal injuries. Uh, Thaibu Brignol had major skull damage, and Dubinina and Zolotarov had uh, major chest fractures. According to Boris, oh, this guy's last name, Vazrazdini, Vazrazdini. Hey, man, all right. The force uh, required, anyway, he says the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparable to that of a fucking car crash. Also, the bodies had no external wounds associated with bone fractures, as if they'd been subjected to a high level of pressure. All right, you guys, following that? So we've got like fucking shit that's comparable, like, um, to being, you know, in a car accident and like smashing your chest, but they don't have anything on the outside, like no cuts or any anything that would result in that kind of damage on their on their skin. So it's pretty fucked up. So. All four bodies found at the bottom of the creek in a uh, running stream of water had soft tissue damage to their head and face. For example, Dubonino was missing her tongue, eyes, part of the lips, as well as uh, facial tissue and a fragment of her skull bone. Oof. While Zolotarov, Zolotoy, Zolotar, yeah, Zolotar, I said it right the fucking first time. Zolotarov was missing, well, he, he, oh shit, he was missing his eyeballs, like legit. And Alexander Kolov, Kolovatov, um, he was missing his eyebrows. Mm-hmm. It's fucking weird. V.A. Uh, Valzradini, the forensic expert performing the post-mortem examination, judged that these injuries happened after they had died due to the location of the bodies in a stream. Okay? So they're saying this, this all happened after, after the fact. So it's not like they were out there shaving off their eyebrows and then they died, you know, or popping their eyeballs out or whatever. At first, there was speculation that the... This is amazing, by the way, that the indigenous Manzi people, who were just simple reindeer herders local to the area, had attacked and murdered the group for making fun of Rudolph. 
Several Mansi were interrogated, but the investigation indi indicated that the nature of the deaths did not support this hypothesis. Only the hiker's footprints were visible, and they showed no sign of hand-to-hand -hand struggle. Obviously, I was kidding about the Rudolph thing. They actually attacked the hikers, they believe, um, for just being on their land or whatever. But how fucking amazing would that be? You know, we heard you make fun of Rudolph. You know, that's that fucking great. Although the temperature was very low, around uh, 13 to 22 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 13 to 22 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's fucking cold. With a storm blowing, the dead were only partially, partially dressed, like I mentioned. So it's fucking weird that these guys, they don't have clothes on. Some of them were, like, damn near naked. So, mm. Journalists reporting on the available parts of the inquest files claim that it states, uh, one, that six of the group of members died of hypothermia and three of fatal injuries. We said that. There were no indications of other people nearby on Kolat Sayakal apart from the nine travelers. You know, they didn't see any other footprints, nothing like that. Um, the tent had been open, you know, from, from within, like we said. The victims died six to eight hours after their last meal. Traces from the camp show that all group members left the campsite of their own accord on foot, so it's not like someone drug them out. Some levels, this is fucking crazy, some levels of radiation were actually found on one of the victim's clothing. Um, to dispel the theory of an attack by the indigenous Manzi people, uh, Vorzdeni stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by human beings because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. So even if they would have believed that these uh, Manzi people would have been into a fight with them, the, the damage to their their chest and their heads and stuff like that it was just way too much it was too big uh also release documents contain no information about the condition of the skiers internal organs yeah so nothing was stated about that and most obviously as we know there were no survivors at the time the official conclusion was that the group members had died because of a compelling natural force the inquest officially ceased in may 1959 as a result of the absence of a guilty party the files were sent to a secret archive in 1997, it was revealed that the negatives from Krivonshenko's camera were kept in the private archive of one of the investigators, Lev Ivanov. The film material was donated by Ivanov's daughter to the Dyatlov Foundation. The diaries of the hiking party fell into Russia's public domain in 2009. So all this stuff can be, you know, looked at and gone through and, and shit like that. Not at first. At first, they're like, no, no, this is this mine now. On April 12th, 2018... Zolotarev's remains were exhumed, and this is kind of fucked up, on the initiative of uh, journalists of the Russian tabloid newspaper. <sighs> Come on, guys. Komsomolskaya. Hmm. Kom <laughs> hey, there it is. Komo <laughs> I had it the first time. Komsomolskaya Pravda. That's the name of it, yeah. Uh, contradictory result results were obtained. One of the experts said that the character of the injuries resembled a person knocked down by a car and the DNA analysis did not reveal any similarity to the DNA of living relatives. In other words, they're saying that that's not who this is. In addition, it turned out that Zolotara's name was not on the list of those buried at the Ivanov Ivanovskoye Cemetery. Okay, that's like the little memorial cemetery for them. Um, nevertheless, the reconstruction of the face from the exhumed skull matched post-war photographs of Zolotarov, and although journalists expressed suspicions that another person was hiding under Zolotarov's name after World War II. So that's kind of fucked up. This is just 2018 because they think that Zolotarov, you know, that it's not him. And they're saying that, like, you know, the DNA doesn't match and that it just, if it's all in its name, why was his name not put on the fucking thing? Is someone just not like him? You know, they're like, oh, fuck that guy. He owed me five bucks. I no, no, you know what I mean? It's fucking weird. So in February 2019, Russian authorities reopened the investigation into the incident yet again, 
although only three possible explanations were, were actually being considered. That's the avalanche, a slab avalanche, or a hurricane. Yeah, you heard that, hurricane. The possibility of a crime had been completely discounted. So there was nothing, you know, there was no foul play. It wasn't like somebody went up there and whatever. But there are people that believe that that's not true. And we'll go through some of that as well. It's fucking, it's crazy to me how people can just speculate and create their own shit. You know, it's like, well, all of the, all of the professionals and the scientists and everybody else say that, no, that's not it. And they go, mm-mm. Nope, I've read somewhere that, that, that he owed some money, and so that's, you know, it just doesn't make sense. So a bunch of other reports brought about a whole shitload of additional speculation. Um, 12-year-old 12 12 year Yuri, um, oh man, what a, I feel bad. Last name's Kuntsevich, Kuntsevich, yeah, K-U-N-T-Sevich, Kuntsevich, who later became the head of the Yekaterinburg-based uh, Dyatlov Foundation, attended five of the hikers' funerals. He recalled that their skin had a deep brown tan. Hmm, I wonder why would they have a deep brown tan? Especially because, you know, they're Russian. They're probably as pale as I am. Another group of hikers 31 miles south of the incident reported that they saw strange orange spheres in the sky to the north on the night of the incident. Similar spheres were observed in Evedel and other areas continually during the period from February to March of 1959 by various independent witnesses, including the Meteorology Service and the military. These sightings were not noted in the 1959 investigation, and the various witnesses actually came forward years later. Hmm, so there's things floating in the sky, and there's radiation, and there's people, hmm, people missing. So after the initial investigation, Anatoly Gushkin, uh, summarized his research in the book, The Price of State Secrets is Nine Lives. Some researchers criticized the work for its concentration on the speculative theory of a Soviet secret weapon experiment, but its publication led to public discussion, stimulated by an interest in the paranormal. It is true that many of those who had remained silent for 30 years reported new facts about the incident. Um, one of them was the former police officer, Lev Ivanov, Okay, remember that guy who led the official inquest in 1959. In 1990, he published an article that included his admission that the investigation team had no rational explanation for the incident. He also stated that after his team reported that they had seen flying spheres, he then received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss the claims. So in other words, they said, you didn't see shit. All right, so you didn't. He's like, no, but I swear. Nope, nope, you didn't. You didn't. You want to go to the fucking gulag? I know what that is. See that? It's my Elijah gulag. I used to think that was uh, my mother used to make this uh, this stuff called goulash, and I thought that goulash and gulag were the same word. So I thought that people were being sent to the goulash. It, I'm stupid. In 2000, a regional television company produced the documentary film "The Mystery of Dyatlov Pass." With the help of the film crew, a Yekaterinburg writer, Anna uh, Matvayeva, published a docudrama of the same name. A large part of the book includes broad quotations from the official case, diaries of victims, interviews with searchers, and other documentaries collected by the filmmakers. The narrative line of the book details the everyday life and thoughts of a modern woman, uh, an alter ego of the author herself, which is fucking super weird, who attempts to resolve the case. All right, so she's, she's it's fictional, but whatever. Despite its fictional narrative, uh, Matvayeva's book remained the largest source of documentary materials ever made. Um, um, available to the public regarding the incident. Also, the pages of the case files and other documentaries and photocopies and transcripts are gradually being published on a web forum from nerds just like you and I. Yes, if you guys want to keep diving into this, 
Just go up and look at uh, Matvayev. Mat oh, Matvayeva. Yeah, is that her name? Yeah, that is it. Anna Matvayeva. That's her name. I'll try to put a link in here for you guys. The Dyatlov Foundation was founded in 1999 at Yekaterinburg with the help of Ural State Technical University led by Yuri uh, Konsevich. Remember, we said Yuri Konsevich, yeah. Uh, the poor name. The foundation's stated aim is to continue investigation of the case and to maintain the Dyatlov Museum to preserve the memory of the dead hikers. On July uh, 1st, 2016, a memorial plaque was inaugurated in Solok Solokomsk. <laughs> Solokomsk. Solokomsk. Whatever. In Ural's Perm region, dedicated to Yuri Yutin. Yeah, the dude who pushed out and is the sole survivor of the expedition group uh, who actually died in 2013. Uh, Yuri. So now let's go over some of the theories here of what actually may or may not have actually taken place. So right now, you know, you're basically hearing that people are going, well, no, they're orbs. And then this, and then that. There's so much speculation revolving this, and that's why it's such a, a hot topic for people to talk about. So um, let, let's talk about the avalanche first. On July 11th, 2020, Andrei Andre Koryakov, deputy head of the Ural's Federal District uh, da, Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office, announced an avalanche to be, quote, the official cause of death for the Dyatlov Group in 1959. Later independent uh, computer simulation and analysis by Swiss researchers, and we know how the Swiss can do it, of their hot choco, choco, hot cocoa. I said hot choco. Anyway. Anyway, the, uh, the switch researchers also suggest that the avalanche as the cause. So they went in with some computer simulation shit, and they were like, nope, this is it. So reviewing the sensationalist Yeti hypothesis, this is amazing. American skeptic author Benjamin Radford suggests an avalanche is more plausible. So now remember, I didn't really touch on this. I kind of did a joking point, but there are people out there that believe that a Yeti came in and just killed everybody. And that's why the, uh, the, the, the wounds were so severe and stuff because a Yeti is supposed to be big and whatever. So there's people that believe that. Okay. And listen, you may be one of them and it's possible. Show me the proof, motherfucker. So he says, quote, that the group woke up in a panic and cut the, uh, their way out the tent, either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to the tent or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Uh, better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being uh, buried alive in it under tons of snow, is what he says. Uh, he goes on to say, they were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help slow um, oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while the others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed. But it was too cold, and they all froze to death before they could locate their tent in the darkness. At some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the group of four whose bodies was most severely damaged were caught in an avalanche and buried under four, uh, yeah, 13 feet of snow, uh, more than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner described. Dubonina's tongue was more than likely removed by scavengers and ordinary predation. So in other words, predators came out there and they ate the eyeballs and they ate part of the face because, uh, man, it's so fucking, isn't it gross? <laughs> I know, every time we talk about cannibalism, not cannibalism, but just eating people in general or anything, it could be a fucking animal. It's just so gross to me. Anyway, so he's saying that, that, that the ones that were so brutally, like um, their injuries were so bad, they were the ones caught in the actual avalanche and 13 feet of snow is a shit ton of weight. So they're saying that he's saying that that's what that is. So basically he said, fuck your Yeti theory. And yeah, that's what he says to that one. 
So evidence contradicting the avalanche theory includes, so this is contradicting the avalanche theory, so pay attention. The location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. An avalanche would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. The bodies found within a month of the event were covered with a very shallow layer of snow, and had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. This would have caused more serious and different injuries in the process and would have damaged the tree line. Okay, kind of makes sense. Uh, another one, over 100 expeditions to the region had been held since the incident and none of them ever reported conditions that might create an avalanche. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to occur. The, quote, dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes and cornices, were observed in April and May when the snowfalls of winter were melting. During February, when the incident occurred, there were no such conditions. All right. So they're saying they've been out there 100 times or more, and they've never seen anything even remotely close to that. So this was this a one-time anomaly? You know, well, maybe. An analysis of the terrain and the slope showed that even if there could have been a very specific avalanche that found its way into the area, its path would have gone past the tent. The tent had collapsed from the side, but not in a horizontal direction. Okay, you guys following that? Dyatlov was an experienced skier and much older, uh, and the much older Zolotaryov, 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 Zolotoyev, there it is. I, I have to say it with accent. Zolotoyev, it makes sense that way. If I say it just like my normal talk or whatever, some whatever. Uh, was studying. He was studying for his master's uh, certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking. Neither of these two men would have been likely to camp anywhere in the path of a potential avalanche. So these guys knew what they were doing, and they're just saying that they would never have done that. Okay. Um, also, footprint. Uh, foot, footprint. <laughs> the footprint patterns <laughs> footprint patterns leading away from the tent were inconsistent with someone let alone a group of nine people running in panic from either real or imagined danger all the footprints leading away from the tent and towards the woods were consistent with individuals who were walking at a normal pace so their footprints didn't look like they were in a hurry they looked like they were just kind of like going for yeah, I'm just going to go for go for a walk uh, you know I, I, I don't know fucking crazy in it so a review of the 1959 investigations evidence um uh, uh evidence completed the in 2015 2019 by experienced investigators from the investigative committee of the russian federation aka the icrf on request of the families confirmed that the avalanche with several important details added all right first of all the icrf investigators one of them an experienced alpinist mm, yeah an alpinist so he likes to go hiking in the alps i guess I don't know. I didn't know what that is. Yeah, whatever. Uh, confirmed that the weather on the night of the tragedy was very harsh with wind speeds up to hurricane force. We're talking anywhere between 45 to 67 miles per hour. A snowstorm and temperatures reaching negative uh, 40 degrees Celsius. All right. So that's a lot of shit. These factors were not considered by the 1959 investigators who arrived at the scene at the accident three weeks later when the weather had improved and any remains of the snow slide had settled and been covered with fresh snowfall. The harsh weather at the same time played a critical role in the events of the tragic night, which have been reconstructed. All right. And this is what he, this is what these guys are saying now, the committee, what they found. And again, there's a lot of back and forth and I know there is, but that's why when you got, you guys have to come up with your own 
Like, what do you believe happened? You know, because there's a lot of compelling evidence on both sides. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a science guy, so whatever. So uh, on February 1st, the group arrives at the Kolat Sayakal Mountain and erects a large nine-person tent on an open slope without any natural barriers such as forest. On the day um, and a few preceding days, a heavy snowfall continued with strong wind and frost. Okay, so now again, though, if our guy, the Atlov was so, and the other guy were so, um, you know, they were so seasoned, would they have actually put that where they, you know what I mean? Or maybe they didn't know. Maybe, maybe they didn't, I don't know. The group traversing the slope and digging a tent site into the snow weakens the snow base. Okay, so the snow is untouched for God only knows how long, and then all of a sudden these knuckleheads come around and fucking they fuck it up. During the night, the snowfield above the tent starts to slide down slowly under the weight of this new snow, gradually pushing on the tent fabric, starting from the entrance. All right, so you can't get out, so it's starting to slide, so you can't get out of that that entrance. The group wakes up and starts evacuation in panic, with only some able to put on warm clothes. With the entrance blocked, the group escapes through a hole cut in the tent fabric and descends to the slope. Uh, descends the slope to find a place uh, perceived, they thought, as safe from the avalanche only, you know, uh, what, 1,500 meters down, okay, at the forest bo border. Because like everyone says, like, you're going to go towards the forest because that'll help stop, you know, any fucking snow that's trying to kill you. Killer snow, that's fun. Because some of the members have only incomplete clothing, the group splits up. Two of the group, only in their underwear and pajamas, were found in the Siberian pine tree near a fire pit. Their bodies were found first and confirmed to have died from hypothermia. Of course, they didn't have any fucking clothes on. Three hikers, including Dyatlov, attempted to climb back to the tent, possibly to get sleeping bags. They had better clothes than those at the fire pit, but still quite light and with inadequate footwear. All right, so they just bonked out. Like, they just jumped out of this fucking tent and were gone. It's just weird to me that some of them actually had clothes on and the others didn't. So, I, I don't know, it's just fucking weird. Um, their bodies were found at various distances, uh, 300 to 600 meters from the campfire in poses, suggesting that they had fallen exhausted while trying to climb in deep snow in extremely cold weather. Yeah, that shit sucks. Like, I know damn well that most of you guys are out there listening. Well, I don't know. Maybe Davey doesn't get snow down there. But well, now I feel like everyone's getting snow right now, like fucking Texas and Florida and everyone's getting trounced with it. But if you've ever tried to walk through deep snow, it's fucking exhausting. Oh, it sucks so bad. I mean, you can only go for so long and you're just fucking you're just beat. Um, also, the remaining four equipped with warm clothing and footwear were trying to find a or build a better camping place in the forest further down the slope. Their bodies were uh, found 70 meters from the fireplace, not an actual fireplace, where the fire was held. Under seven, that'd be great if there was an actual fireplace in the middle of the woods. The Yetis out there like, come on in. It's cool. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, it's fucking cold. Anyway, um, under several meters of snow and with traumas indicating that they had fallen into a snow hole formed above a stream. All right. So there was stream below snow hole and they went bloop, and they fell underneath because the snow is lighter. You know what I mean? Than they are. And yeah, whatever. And these bodies were found only after two months. Okay. So this is what they're saying to dispute the, the people that are, they're saying it was a fucking avalanche. All right. Which is pretty much what everyone's fucking saying. So according to the ICRF investigators, the factors contributing to the tragedy were extremely bad weather and a lack of experience of the group leader in such conditions, which led to the selection of a dangerous camping place, which, I don't know, was he inexperienced or something fucking sinister happened? After the snow slide, another mistake of the group was to split up rather than building a temporary camp down in the forest and trying to survive through the night. 
Negligence of the 1959 investigators contributed to, the, uh, to their report, creating more questions than answers and inspiring numerous conspiracy theories. So, yeah, these fucking guys in 59, they were like, ah, I don't know. It looks like a Yeti fucking did this shit, Bill. They're like, yeah, Bob, I know. And the next thing you know, and I just think it's hilarious. The, the Yeti one is by far my favorite, so I keep throwing it in there. In 2021, a team of phys uh, physicists, phys <laughs> a team of physicists, I'm changing that fucking word. Anyway, physicists and engineers led by Alexander Puzrin published a new model that demonstrated how even a relatively small slide of snow slab on the Kolatsayakal slope, I'm probably saying that completely wrong, uh, slope and uh, how it could actually cause tent damage and injuries consistent with those suffered by the Dyatlov team. Okay, so that's 2021. Physicists, science, people way fucking smarter than I am. They said that this is what... It was fucking snow that slid. It was a, just, yeah, it was an avalanche, all right? And they don't have to be big either. It doesn't have to be like the ones you see in the movie where a whole mountain comes down. If the shit shifts and it's deep enough snow, it fucking rolls and your ass is going with it. So, yeah, this is why I don't ski or do anything snow-related. Uh, it's not my thing. Anyway, I'm having another drink, folks, because I'm by myself. Mm-hmm. Ah, shit's pretty good. All right. So... What about the catabatic wind that I mentioned earlier? Did you guys pick up on that? The catabatic wind? Well, in 2019, a Swedish-Russian expedition was made to the site, and after investigations, they proposed that a violent catabatic wind was a plausible explanation for the incident. So what the fuck is a catabatic wind? Am I even pronouncing it correctly? Probably not. But they are uh, they're drainage winds, okay? And it's a wind that carries high-density air from a higher elevation down a slope under the force of gravity. So it kind of goes up and up, up, up and down. And when it comes down, it comes down, like, with a fucking force. They are somewhat rare events and can be extremely violent. They were implicated in a 1978 case at Anaris Mountain in Sweden where eight hikers were killed and one was severely injured in the aftermath of a catabatic wind. These fucking things have killed people before. The topography of these locations were noted to be very similar according to the expedition. So these guys are like, you know, it could have been the fucking wind. A sudden catabatic wind would have made it impossible to remain in the tent. Fucking strong wind. And the most rational course of action would obviously have been for the hikers to cover the tent with snow and seek shelter behind the tree line. All right, because they don't want their tent to blow away. So they're like, fucking cover it up. On top of the tent, there were also a uh, there was also a torch left turned on. Okay, possibly left there intentionally so that the hikers could find their way back to the tent once the wind subsided. The expedition proposed that the group of hikers constructed two this fucking word bivouac. I tried to look up a fucking uh, pronunciation for this. Um, it's probably super simple. It's probably like bivouac. You know what? It probably is, isn't it? Anyway, these shelters just make shit fucking shelters, uh, one of which actually collapsed, leaving four of the hikers buried with the severe injuries that we've talked about over and over again. Okay, so this guy is saying it could have been a fucking wind. Okay, or not guys, this Russian expedition, Swedish expedition thing, whatever. So um, another one, this is fucking something I didn't really know a whole lot about here. Another hypothesis popularized by Donnie Eicher's 2013 book, Dead Mountain, is that when going around Kolot Sayakal, Sakal, fucking thing, created a Carmen Vortex Street, a repeating pattern of swirling vortices, remember that word we just learned not too long ago? <laughs> you use it again. Caused by a process known as vortex shedding, which is responsible for the unsteady separation of flow of a fluid around blunt bodies. Okay, you get that? Swirling vortices, vortex shedding, 
It's fucking shit that's even my... I, I've got the whole definition in front of me, and I still don't really fucking understand what it is. Anyway, according to Iker's theory, the infrasound... Uh, uh, yeah, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the uh, Holachal... <laughs> Holachal Mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers. Iker claims that because of their panic... The hikers were driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fled down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been uh, out of the infrasound's path and would have re regained their composure, but the darkness would have been unable to return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims were the result of their stumbling over the edge of a ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. Okay, first of all, this is just like an, it's a it's a frequency that comes up. It's called infrasound, and it's coming off these Carmen vortex sheet thing. It's vortex shedding, and it's unsteady separation of flow of fluid around blunt objects. Okay, so and it's just an infrasound. It's just a fucking noise and makes you go cuckoo. But he's saying that they could have possibly fallen uh, over the edge of the ravine, but there was no like I don't know. They said that it, that that it didn't seem like it would have been. Don't you think those motherfuckers would have saw, uh, thought about that to begin with? Is what I'm saying. Like, oh yeah, he fell. Yeah, look at him. He's, he's there's a rock right here that looks just like the rock. But they didn't say that, so I don't know what this guy's talking about. Anyway, I don't, I don't like that one. Um, this is a good one and a fun one. Uh, and another theory: the campsite fell within the path of a Soviet parachute mine exercise. Yeah, Soviet parachute mines. <laughs> so, yeah, mines parachuting over you. Not under you, over you. That sounds fucking fun. Um, this theory alleges that the hikers, woken up by loud explosions, fled the tent in a shoeless panic and found themselves, selves, found themselves, unable to return for their shit, basically. All right. After some members froze to death attempting to endure the bombardment, others com uh, commandeered their clothing, only, you know, took the dead people's clothing, only to be fatally injured by subsequent parachute mine concussions. Right, <laughs> parachute mines, and these are a real thing. It's just, it's fucking crazy to me. There are, in fact, records of parachute mines being tested by the Soviet military in the area around the time the hikers were out there just fucking around. Parachute mines detonate while still in the air rather than upon striking the Earth's surface and produce signature uh, injuries similar to those experienced by the hikers. Heavy internal damage with relatively little external trauma. The theory coincides with reported sightings of glowing orange orbs. Remember, we said that floating or falling in the sky with the general vicinity within the general uh, vicinity of the hikers and alleged photographed by them. Okay, so yeah, supposedly they took pictures. Okay, so remember the camera that they said they found or whatever, and that the one guy actually had or whatever. There's supposed pictures of of this happening around there. Yeah, so I, I, I don't, it's fucking crazy. So this theory, among others, um, uses scavenging animals to explain uh, Dubinina's injuries, you know, like the eyeballs being taken out and the tongue and all that shit. Ugh. Some speculate that the bodies were unnaturally manipulated on the basis of characteristic liver mortis markings discovered during an autopsy, as well as burns to hair and skin. Photographs of the tent allegedly showed that it was erected incorrectly, so they couldn't even fucking put the tent upright. Uh, something the experienced hikers were unlikely to have done. Haha, -ha, was it a cover-up? A similar theory alleges the testing of radiological weapons and is based partly on the discovery of radioactivity on some of the clothing as well as the descriptions of the, the bodies um, by relatives as having orange skin and gray hair. However, radioactive dispersal would have affected all, not just some, of the hikers and equipment. And the skin and hair discoloration can be explained by a natural process of mummification after three months of exposure to the cold and wind. 
The initial suppression by Soviet authorities of files describing the group's disappearance is sometimes mentioned as evidence of a cover-up. But the concealment of information about domestic incidents um, was standard procedure in the USSR and, you know, of course, nothing strange. By the late 1980s, all the Dyatlov files had been released in some manner. So, okay, initially, basically, they were saying that the, the, the Soviet Union was, they were dropping these parachute things down and they accidentally killed these guys girls this group of people and when they found out that they did it that they tried to cover it up and make it look like a avalanche that's why they you know these these fucking guys don't i, I guess nobody I, I, I don't know so i guess the soviets don't know how to build a fucking tent I, I don't know anyway that's what they that's what they're saying all right so let's talk about something called paradoxical <laughs> undressing yes International Science Times uh, pro uh, proposed that the hikers' deaths were caused by hypothermia, which can induce a behavior known as paradoxical undressing, in which hypothermic subjects remove their clothes in response to perceived feelings of burning warmth. But yeah, you know how your skin turns black and stuff when you're getting hypothermia? It does start to feel really fucking hot and shit, so I bet if your entire body was feeling that way, you might want to take your clothes off. But then again, wouldn't they know that that's what... Anyway, so it is undisputed that six of the, the uh, nine hikers died of hypothermia. We know that. However, others in the group appear to have acquired additional clothing from those that had already died, which suggests that they were of sound enough mind to try to add layers. The saying is, the other ones going cuckoo, and so they went over and took their shit because they had died. Fucking weird. Keith McCloskey, who has researched the incident for many years and has appeared in several TV documentaries on the subject, traveled to the Dyatlov Pass in 2015 with Yuri Konsevich of the Dyatlov Foundation and a group at the Dyatlov Pass. Oh, and a group, sorry. And at the Dyatlov Pass, he noted there were discrepancies and distances quoted between the two possible locations of the uh, snow shelter with Dubinina, Kolovatov, Zolotarov, and Thibault Brignols. That name doesn't sound right. That sounds French or something. Or Thibault? I don't know. Swedish, maybe? I don't know, whatever. Anyway, uh, so there's discrepancies where they, you know, they were found. One location was approximately 80 to 100 meters from the pine tree where the bodies of Doroshenko and Krivonoshenko were found, and the other suggested location was so close to the tree that anyone in the snow shelter could have spoken to those at the tree without raising their voices to be heard. Okay? So super close. The second location also has a rock in the stream where Dubinina's body was found, and is uh, the more likely location of the two. However, the second suggested location of the two has a topography that is closer to the photos taken at the time in the search in 1959. Okay, get all that? The location of the tent, here's another, I'm gonna go through all these. Uh, he also says the location of the tent near the ridge was found to be too close to the spur of the ridge for any significant buildup of snow to cause an avalanche. Furthermore, the prevailing wind blowing over the ridge had the effect of blowing snow away from the edge of the ridge on the side where the tent was. This further reduced any buildup of snow to cause an avalanche. This aspect of the lack of snow on the top and near of the top of the ridge was pointed out by Sergei Sogren in 2010. Okay, so the way they were all fucking there or whatever, it, he's saying it doesn't make sense. Um, McCloskey also noted that uh, Lev Ivanov's boss, oh, geez, Evgeny Okashev, <laughs> I got that one. Uh, deputy head of the investigative department of the Sverdolsk Oblast. I fucking hate out of all the words in this entire thing. It's that one I hate the most. Sverdolsk. 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 Fuck you. How's that? 
Uh, anyway, the prosecution office uh, was still alive in 2015 and had given an interview to former uh, Komarovo prosecutor Leonid Proshkin in which Okashev stated that he was arranging another trip to, uh, to the past to fully investigate the strange deaths of the last four bodies when Deputy Prosecutor General Yurikov arrived from Moscow and ordered the case to be shut down. He said, you ain't going nowhere. Nope. Now, is it just because he doesn't want to waste the fucking money? You know what I mean? Is he just be that guy like, no, no, it's, 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 it's too long. Fucking stop. Um, Evgeny, Evgeny Okashev also stated in his interview with Leonid Proshkin and, uh, that Kleinov, head of the Sverdolovsk <laughs> prosecutor's office was present at the first post-mortems in the morgue and spent three days there. Something Okashev regarded as highly unusual and the only time in his experience it had happened. So he was there for three freaking days. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of fucked up. So Donnie, I, uh, Donnie Iker, we talked about her earlier with the, the investigative or did the documentary or whatever. Um, she evaluated several other theories that are deemed unlikely or have been discredited. Okay, so these are just some other fucking things I hear. So obviously we talked about they were attacked by the Mansi, the, the deer herders or whatever, but there was no track evidence or anything like that. Um, they were attacked and chased by animal wildlife. But again, there were no animal tracks, and the group would not have abandoned the relative security of the tent. Yeah, if you're in a fucking tent that's closed up and you hear an animal, you ain't going to jump out and try and fuck with that animal. At least I hope you wouldn't, because that's stupid. Um, high winds blew one member away, and others attempted to rescue the person. This is another theory. A large, experienced group would have uh, would not have behaved like that, and winds strong enough to blow away people with such force would have also blown away the tent. Aha! Uh, and uh, oh, this one's great, by the way. This one's kind of fucked up. <laughs> An argument possibly related to a romantic encounter that left some of them only partially closed led to a violent dispute. About this, Iker states that it's highly implausible by all indications. The group was largely harmonious and sexual tension was confined to platonic flirtation and crushes. There were no drugs present and only alcohol and the only alcohol was a small flask of medicinal alcohol found intact at the scene. The group had even sworn off cigarettes for the expedition, she says. Furthermore, a fight could not have left the massive injuries that one body had suffered. Okay, so... What do you guys think about this? So, I don't know. I, there's a lot of back and forth. And I love that, you know, like this guy and this whole group's like, no, it was an avalanche and here's why. And then they're like, nah, no, because here's why. And it just keeps going back and forth. But they have finally come out and said that this is what it is. And I want to know what you guys think. Because do you guys think that it was a fucking Yeti attack? Because, I mean, to me, that's the most plausible, right? Fucking Yeti came out there went over and he's big enough he probably just fucking killed everybody and then just went back and made the tracks look like he wasn't there because yetis are fucking smart I don't know if you guys knew that or not but yetis are fucking super intelligent like like way smarter than Bigfoot that's why they hide better that's why they're up in fucking yeah whatever anyway I want to know what you guys think was it a yeti was it the uh, the flying fucking mines <laughs> what could it have been it's fucking amazing i'm really glad we did this one except that i really don't feel like i've got any kind of closure on this one and i would love to hear what you guys have to think about it because you know could it have been could it have been that one dude yuri the guy what's his name yuden yeah mr oh i'm hurt i'm not gonna go out there could he have stayed behind 
waited for everyone to fall asleep and then just start like fucking attacking everybody. Well, there was no blood. Maybe he used a... Eh, I don't know. Eh, he sounds like too much of a pussy anyway. <laughs> anyway, that is the Dyatlov Pass. Did it by myself here, all alone, in the train station. And I want to know what you guys think. But you know what? It's now time for my favorite part. And now, boys and girls, it's your favorite part of the show. The movie review. Which top ten movies will make the cut today? All right, so we are going to be talking about the top ten best horror films set in the woods. That's right. It's really hard to find the top ten movies of avalanches that fucking, you know what I mean? Like, it's, there's like four. Not even. I think there's three. There's two. And there might be one. I don't know. Whatever. But yeah, these are the, the ten, excuse me, ten best horror films set in the woods. Coming in at number 10, I love this movie. Moody and I have talked about this movie, especially when we're talking about Nolans and uh, Louisiana and whatnot. It's Hatchet from 2006. A wildly entertaining, fun, and gory throwback to the slasher films of the 1980s. Adam Green's Hatchet is the story of a group of tourists who get lost in Louisiana swamps and become terrorized by a backwoods psycho named Victor Crowley. The mutant slasher slaughters them one by one in creative ways that allow the special effects team to have some bloody, bloody fun. Of course, Kane Hodder who played Jason Voorhees in a few of the uh, Friday the 13th movies. He's in this, and it's just absolutely awesome. If you guys haven't seen Hatchet, go watch it. It's funny as shit. It's gory as shit. <laughs> it's just funny as shit. I love it. Uh, number nine is Madman from 1981. I have not heard of this, and from the picture I'm looking at right now, it does not look visually appealing. 1981's underrated slasher film Madman is the only film Joe Gioni ever directed, probably because it sucked. It tell, uh, tells the tale of Madman Mars, a monstrous hillbilly murderer <laughs> who lives deep in the woods. If you trespass or disrespect his land, you die. You die, boy. The film is a bare-bones horror film that sets out to do nothing more than scare its audience. Uh, Giannone, Giannone, maybe? Giannone? We'll call him that. It's better than freaking Kolaskov Pass or whatever the fuck I was trying to say. Anyway, it says he stays away from the extreme gore in favor of palpable chills. The director bathes the woods in a dark blue moonlight hue that achieves an eerie atmosphere throughout. Madman is one of the true slasher film treasures of its day. Okay, maybe I'll have to check it out. Actually, uh, sounds kind of up my up my alley right there. You guys should watch Madman and then let me know what you think. Uh, number eight, Sleepaway Camp, of course. Uh, Sleepaway Camp, and this is the original from 1983, is the cult hit that shocked audiences in 1983. A young girl and her cousin go to a summer camp. Those that disrespect them meet their bloody end. The film had a wicked sense of humor and some creative kill scenes, but what audiences remember most is the final twist that would make fans of M. Night Shyamalan proud. This minor summer camp horror classic spawned a successful straight-to-video series of sequel. Yeah, there is like fucking 47 of these. Sleepaway Camp 95. Like, there's so many of these fucking things. Ugh. Anyway, that was good. It's it's campy. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> Thank you, thank you, it's campy Alright, I like it No, no, that's that's fine I'll just go fuck myself, whatever uh, Number uh, seven on this list is The Burning, 1981 uh, Another great slasher treasure is The Burning A killer in the woods classic duo Or do, wait, what? A killer in the woods classic do, oh, due to its cast Pacing and Tom Savini Yay, Tom Savini, we love him uh, His marvelous makeup uh, effects I don't think I've seen this one either. 
The cast included a pre-fame Holly Hunter and Jason Alexander. That's amazing. And involved a murderer at a uh, summer camp who was killing his victims with super sharp gardening shears. The film makes good use of its outdoor setting and provides uh, genre fans with an entertaining film with top shelf gore. There you go. Fucking Jason Alexander. That's amazing. And Holly Hunter. She's good too. Um, number six. Uh, here you go. The original Last House on the Left. Kind of fucked up. You guys probably saw the new one that came out not too long ago, right? Wes Craven's horror classic Last House on the Left has gone down as one of the most disturbing and effective horror films ever made. Two teenage girls are kidnapped by a group of violent maniacs and their parents seek bloody revenge. Craven's film played well in drive-in and grindhouse theaters. Audiences were stunned at the film's over overt brutality and more than extreme violence. The film was banned in some countries for its subject matter. Yeah, even Wes Craven was said to have been shocked after he saw his final cut. Yeah, fucked up movie. I'm sure you guys have probably all seen Last House on the Left, especially if you're horror fans. I'm, I'm thinking you guys are as fucked up as I am. That's why you listen to this fucking show, right? Right. Hold on, I'm taking a drink. Yeah, if you're not uh, familiar with uh, Last House on the Left, basically these guys, like, pretty much kidnap and rape and I think murder I'm trying to remember if this is I think they murder at least one of the girls right and one gets away I think so and I could be fucking confusing that with something else I'm old whatever number five love it 1980 Friday the 13th if you guys have been listening to the show for a long time you know that this is one of those movies that fucked me up as a kid one of the first movies that A fucked me up as a kid but B made me love horror movies absolutely love this i told you guys a story before but i'll tell it again my parents were gone i was young as shit i think it was like 19 uh see i was probably five six years old and it was on hbo and i was home all by myself and yeah i couldn't sleep for like a month it's pretty fucked yeah it's fucked me up so if you don't know friday the 13th one of the biggest box office surprises in history friday the 13th was a low budget film that took the american box office by storm and officially ushered in the slasher craze of the 1980s the story of Mrs. Voorhees taking her revenge on the counselors at Camp Crystal Lake is one of the most well-known in all of 80s horror films. The campers are slaughtered at the hands of makeup guru Tom Savini, my boy Tom Savini, which played a big part in the film's popularity. Although it is his mother who does the killing in this film, sorry for you guys out there who haven't seen it. <laughs> Spoiler alert, go fuck yourself, go watch it. Jason Voorhees was introduced and an iconic and never-ending horror series was born. It was also the first fucking time Kevin Bacon was in a fucking movie. Or at least a budget movie, like a big movie or whatever. Yeah, Kevin Bacon. Yeah, he died. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Uh, number four. Uh, this one is super fucked up. Antichrist. Woo, from 2009. Lars von Trier is a polarizing filmmaker, and Antichrist is his most polarizing film. This terrifying tale starts when a couple's son, uh, couple son died from a fall out of their high-rise apartment window while they were having sex and not watching him. They retreat to a cabin in the woods to try and heal their marriage and their minds. Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsborough deliver uh, devastating performances as the grieving couple. Von Trier doesn't shy away from terror as the woods become a twisted purgatory of the soul where death and sexual mutilation become very real consequences for their negligence as parents. In this film, the woods are alive and they know our deepest secrets and fears and they are violently unforgiving. And by the way, there's a straight freaking wiener in the vag shot in the very beginning of it and i don't know it might have been like fake as in like uh computerized or something but i was like what am i watching <laughs> what did, this is this is pornography i don't want to watch this I, I, i'm not into that shit sorry anyway moving on watch the movie it's all right number three moody's favorite movie in the entire fucking world and he's not here so this is for you moody you love this one it's the evil dead 
course, number three on our list, 1981. Infused with a literally bloody, wicked sense of humor, Sam Raimi's horror classic, The Evil Dead, terrified audiences and introduced a character that would become a horror icon. Of course he would. Five friends take a vacation to a cabin deep in the woods. They find a book of the dead and accidentally unleash demonic forces that bring about a waking hell for the group. Bruce Campbell gives a fun performance playing the survivor who fights desperately to survive the attack and the role of Ash would become iconic. Of course he did. This is my fucking boomstick. I don't think he said fucking. I think I said that. Sorry. Anyway, a groundbreaking and terrifying horror film. Many consider this to be Sam Raimi's masterpiece, and I would have to I would have to concur. I agree. I, I do. Um, number two. Oh, boy. The Blair Witch Project. 1999. Meh. You guys know all about this. I made a fucking shit ton of money. Low-budget horror changed forever with Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Merrick's phenomenally successful The Blair Witch Project. The story of three friends who go into the woods to find the Blair Witch and then meet their fates is one of the... Uh, wait. Yeah, is one that divides horror fans. Okay, I read that wrong. Sorry. Considered by many to be a frightening masterpiece, the film has detractors who claim its minimalism hurts it. I mean, fuck off. Critics and most horror uh, aficionados find the film to be one of the most effective films in the genre. The film's next-to-no budget helps achieve the creepy aura as the film, shot by the actors with video cameras, is grainy and realistic. The film ignited the, quote, found footage subgenre and found its way into the Guinness Book World of Hall uh, uh, <laughs> The Guinness Book of World Records for the highest box office to budget ratio. Yeah. Film cost $60,000 and ended up earning almost $250 million at the box office. That is fucking crazy. I want to do something like that. I want to, like, make $5 million but only spend $100. Bucks. What do you think? Think I can get away with it? I'm sure we can come up with something, right? Maybe. All right. Yeah, I know what it is. Shit-eating robot shirts. That's what it's going to be. Fucking yeah. They're coming, I promise. Uh, number one. <sighs> this is another one. I just watched this one not too long ago. 2016's The Witch. Eh. Robert Eggers' debut film, The Witch, impressed both audiences and critics, becoming a modern horror masterpiece. A heavily religious family in the 1600s, New England, lives on a farm that is surrounded by woods. Deep in the woods is a witch who does the devil's bidding, and the family begins to be torn apart. Eggers uses the slowest of slow burns, but doesn't ease the audience into the terror. It exists in every moment. I don't agree with that. It, um, the woods that, that surround the family's farm give no comfort. The devil has staked his claim, and the woods come for the family through possession and black magic. By the film's shocking ending, Eggers has created a truly unique and riveting horror tale. That's what that fucking goat was his name. Black, Black Tom, Black, Black Sam, something like that. I don't know what it is. I, did, I wasn't a big fan of this one. I mean, it 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 reminds me of that fucking uh, what's that other one? The Midsummer. Like I, I mean, so many people love that fucking movie and this one too. And I'm just I I don't know. I can't. I like the old school shit. I'm not this whole fucking. Hey, let's take two hours to tell the story. and It's really boring, and then boom at the end. Yeah, five five seconds at the end. It's like oh, it's crazy now. No, you just wasted my fucking time. <laughs> anyway, those are the ten top horror movies that were in the woods. Because we were talking about people that were in the woods, kind of. No, they were. They were in the woods. Snowy woods, but they were in the woods. That's what they did. So anyway, hope you guys <laughs> dug that one. <laughs> so passengers, I really hope you enjoyed your ride with us on the Dyatlov Pass incident. Um, it's fucking weird. It's still going on. People still speculate 
Um, there are people out there that are, are wanting to just keep going and reopening and reexamining and, you know, all this other shit and have more investigations and yada, yada, because they either can't accept the actual fact, and that is that a fucking avalanche came through, came through there. Now, there are, you know, circumstance, uh, yeah, the, the circumstantial evidence and stuff like that that kind of like, you know, maybe kind of throws you off the path a little bit and says, well, if it was, then what about this? But anomalies happen in, in everything out there. You know what I mean? So I just think, you know, it is what it is. So join us here next week where we, we will be, uh, well, well, we're going to be talking about the Danvers Lunatic Asylum. You guys don't do any fucking research. Don't go Google anything because Danvers is fucked up. And I just want to tell you the fucking story because if you don't know anything about Danvers, it's a fucking crazy place. Like, and I didn't mean to say crazy because <laughs> well, that was a fucking weird slip. I mean, because the people, they, it's a lunatic asylum. So they are mentally unstable, right? We don't say crazy because that's right. I don't know. I don't know how the fucking thing works. People are lighting the fuck up. Anyway, so we'll be here doing that. So make sure you guys are coming back because um, it's the, the Danvers is fucking great. And I can't wait to talk about it. So make sure to stop over to our official website. That's the midnighttrainpodcast.com. At our website, you can buy some super sweet merchandise. And at our new store, that's right, the store is up there. Our new line of fecal fighter shit-eating robot t-shirts will be dropping soon. I promise you. Promise. I just want to make these things fucking perfect. And I've had a couple of little bumps in a row, but I'll, I'll get them out there for you guys. And listeners keep asking how they can keep the steam in our engines. And, uh, well, I love how whenever I come into this, I have to watch the word asking. For some reason, I always want to say asking. God, what the fuck? Anyway, if you like what you hear from us, consider being a producer of the show by heading over to the midnighttrainpodcast.com and clicking on the little Patreon button at the very top. You can click on it. Or you can go to patreon.com forward slash the midnight train podcast. For as little as $5 a month, you can get all kinds of cool shit like a custom shirt, custom poster, custom sticker, bonus episodes like the Day the Music Died series, and so much more because that's just what we did. We just did one recently where my wife and some friends and uh, who are actually producers of the show, um, we all got on there and we were super drunk, and that was a fucking blast. <laughs> I thought it was fucking fun and whatever. So, and apparently, so did you people that have listened to it. So, if you're a diehard uh, Midnight Train fan and you want to help to produce this motherfucker, our Patreon is for you. And uh, for those of you that would rather just leave us a one time donation, you can also do that by heading over to PayPal and use the email address, the Midnight Train Podcast at gmail.com. Also, you can easily like, subscribe, and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. And most importantly, share the Midnight Train to everyone. It takes only a couple of minutes, and word of mouth is how we're going to get more passengers on this train and continue to bring you weekly episodes. We can't thank you all enough for all the love and support, for sure, for real. And especially send that love and support to, to Moody, because he needs it right now. Poor guy. But uh, it is pretty fucking awesome, and I know that he and I sit there and blather on and on about it. But it's it's really fucking cool when you get people from all over the, the, the world who will not only take the time to listen but also take the time to say you know hey you guys don't suck that's pretty cool you know especially you producers you producers that have that much fucking faith in us is just amazing and i can't i honestly personally i started this thing forever ago and um so i had a, a podcast prior to this and i've been doing it for a little while and then jeff kind of came in and was like hey let's go and do it and yeah jeff by the way congratulations to jeff out there who just got engaged yeah, Mr. I'm not on the show anymore. Went and got hitched, or he's getting hitched. So, yeah, make sure you, uh, you get out there and you, you say congratulations to him, because that's pretty cool. But anyway, thank you all so much for listening. You have no idea how much it means to me. So a big fucking midnight train shout-out to my beautiful wife, Grace, Big Mac, 
Julia, John, Brandon, Pat, Janet, Barbara, Patricia, Lacey, Mikey, Ben, John, Nate, Tess, Heidi, Kaylin, Kevin, Samantha, Matt, Diana, Christopher, Jacqueline, Katie, Michaela, Ramsey, Tamar, the Sister Skeleton. Please make sure you check out the Sister Skeleton podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I have to say it that way because if not, I'll be like Sister Skeleton and it's, just, it's fucking stupid. Anyway, um, they're they're awesome. Make sure you're checking them out. Uh, also to Riley, Logan, Reagan, Charlie, Alyssa, Sydney, Ava, Diana, or uh, Diane, Alina, Stephanie, Julie, Laura, Cynthia, Kirsten, Dawn, Nicola, Caitlin, Chanel, Alex, Emily Ann, Son of Vasco, Alicia, uh, Frandipai, Danny, Rex, Sadie, Remy, Melissa, Stormy, Eva, Melissa, two Melissas, whoo, Wayne, Victoria, Hager, uh, Sean, Bill's son, Colin, Todd, uh, my really good friend, David Vallo. Uh, Juan, by the way, happy birthday, David. Uh, Juan Belen, Ken and Brad of Voodoo Vodka, Stripper Kevin, Davy, our Mexican Vato, and a very fucking special fucking, fucking, fucking superhero fucking thank you to our Patreon producers. Tommy Fendebosch, that's Tommy Speakabox for some of you out there. Chad Flint, Cheryl Pierce, Chris McLeod, Justin Kowalczyk, Rob Webb from the Funbox Podcast. Make sure you check out the Funbox Podcast. Christina Skelton, Maria Gibbs, Jessica Bartolome, Oliver Gimmel. <laughs> both of them so chainsaw and jigsaw that's how we have to do that now craig spurlock rick resler courtney bachelor katie brabenek and of course my really good friend bill birch if you want your name to be mentioned on the show sign up as a member on our website or become a patreon producer well it's my first time doing this that you guys have heard like on my own i do the uh the day the music died series i do that when i'm by myself and this is the first time we've done an actual midnight train episode just with nobody here and uh yeah i don't know kind of like it fuck you moody <laughs> choo choo motherfuckers i'll go home and get your fucking shine box